Nehemiah 2. I, uh, I want to talk about motivation this morning. Uh, I, I find that a, a very difficult subject, very touchy subject for uh, most people. We find it hard to motivate ourselves and uh, perhaps much more difficult to motivate, uh, motivate others. How do we change others uh, for better or for worse? I have a favorite story. I've told it before, and many of you have heard it, but it has to do with a young man who uh, was just recently married. He was bringing his new bride home in his buggy, and uh, uh, the uh, mare shied away from a bridge as they approached uh, the bridge, and uh, he gently slapped her with the reins, and she kicked. And so he went around to the, the front of the of the buggy, and he took the mare's... Uh, face in his hands, and he looked at her, and he said, that's one. And then he got back in the buggy and slapped her again with the reins, and she kicked him again, and so he reached in the back of the buggy and, and uh, pulled out a tube of four and went around in front and just whacked her right between the ears with it, raised an enormous knot on her head, and her eyes spun around. Both of them were looking out of the same hole for a moment. And uh, uh, his new bride just absolutely went out of her mind. She began to shriek and scream and yell and, and uh, uh, accuse him of, of brutality and inhumane treatment. And, and he, he very gently walked around to the back of the buggy and took her face in his hands and said, that's one. <laughs> now, uh, that I think all of us would agree, would agree is improper motivation. There's something wrong with that appeal. Uh, there is a better way to do it. And I think we learn from Nehemiah in this, uh, this chapter, chapter 2, something of, of the proper way to motivate people, to get people up and get them going in the right direction. Now, if you recall, uh, our friend Nehemiah was a, a building contractor. Uh, he, he was assigned the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. His uh, first vocation was that of the king's wine taster. He was a courtier. He was in the court of Artaxerxes I, the Persian king. But he was called of God to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. Uh, some uh, 140 years before, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, sacked and burned the temple, and uh, pulled down the walls of the city, deported the population, most of the population of the city. The Jews went back 70 years later to rebuild portions of the city. They built much of the, rebuilt much of the housing. Uh, they they uh, put the temple back up, and they began to worship in the temple, but uh, they were not able to build the walls. Time and again, when they made an effort to do so, the Persian or the Babylonian kings would shut the project down. Now, 140 years after the destruction of the city, Nebuchadnezzar is called to uh, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Now, as I said last week, he was a very decisive man. He knew exactly what needed to be done. He had God's word. On the matter, he had a plan. It was God's plan. And he went about affecting the plan. Uh, and he did so by prayer. He spent four months in prayer before he, he swung into action. Because he realized that, it, that God had to move the king to give permission to rebuild the walls. He counted on God to motivate the king. He knew that nothing he could say would do any good. He, he was a strong believer in the sovereignty of, uh, of God and uh, the, the principle in Scripture, enshrined in Scripture, that the heart of the king 
is in the hand of God, and he turns it like a water course to do his will. Uh, I came across a marvelous Luther quote this last week. Uh, Dr. Melanchthon says to, uh, to Luther, Martin, let's today discuss the governance of the universe. And uh, Martin Luther says, uh, no, Philip, let's go fishing and leave the governance of the universe to God. Uh, that really touched my heart. Because uh, uh, he's right to the point, you see. We could talk about the governance of God all we like. We can theologize about it. But, but uh, in the final analysis, God does rule the world. And we can relax and we can enjoy life because we know God is at work to will and to do of his good pleasure. We do not need to fret and pace the floor and bite our nails and stew because things are not going our way. God is in control. And Nehemiah knew that. He knew God had a plan to rebuild the city, and he was counting upon God to motivate the king. Now, uh, the, the next step in the process was to gather materials in order to build. That was absolutely essential. Uh, there was a story in the, uh, in the Reader's Digest this, uh, in the past, uh, this past month about a, a Catholic man who went to his priest to make confession. And uh, uh, he, he uh, confessed that he had been stealing materials, building materials from his employer. And uh, the priest said, well, uh, that's a very serious thing. Uh, you should do some act of penance. Do you know how to make a novena? And the man said, no, but if you have the plans, I know where I can get the materials. <laughs> now, this was the problem that Nehemiah was faced with. Uh, he had the plan. Now he had to get the materials, but he didn't steal them. He went to the proper place to get them. Now let's uh, begin reading with verse 7 of chapter 2. I also said to him, that is to Artaxerxes I, the king of Persia, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Transjordan so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. The uh, first, uh, the first essential for Nehemiah and his workers was to gain letters of safe passage, because he knew that uh, any Jews on the loose would be intercepted and sent back. They were a conquered people, and they couldn't roam the countryside. So he had to have letters of safe conduct. It reminded me of those hall slips that you used to have, uh, that you had to have in school. If you were going to go from one part of the building to another during class time, you had to get. Uh, rites of passage, or uh, you get picked up and sent to the principal's office. That's what, what Nehemiah is referring to here. He had to have a, a hall slip. He had to, write, had to gain the right to go through the countryside in order to get back to, uh, back to Judah. The second thing he needed was materials. May I have a letter to Asaph, king of the, or keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall, and for the residence uh, I will occupy. He needed timber uh, for the walls because they put timber between the courses of stones uh, to, make them more, to make the wall more secure. In case of siege or earthquake, the wall would hold together. He needed timber for the gates and for his own residence. He wanted to make a little wooden uh, governor's mansion, much like our governor's mansion here in the, in the city. He needed a place to reside because most of the city had been destroyed. And so he goes to the king and asks for permission uh, to cut wood in the royal forest. 
and the king grants permission for that. And then third, uh, the, the king offers uh, to send uh, uh, an escort with him. But because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, that is the region across the Euphrates, those governors surrounding the, the uh, province of Judah that would be a threat to him. He went to them, gave them the letters, and the king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Uh, the uh, Persian king during the time of Ezra had, had, had made the same offer. He offered to send a royal escort with, with Ezra and the, first, the second group of returnees. Ezra turned him down for some reason. Uh, Nehemiah did not because he realized that this would provide protection for him and for his workers and for the materials that uh, he was transporting to Judah and that he would arrive in style. Now, it's interesting to me that, uh, that Nehemiah used the world, but he did not abuse it. That, he, that is, he used every human means to get the job done, but he didn't count upon it. He counted on the, the mighty hand of God or the good hand of God that was upon him. I think most of us are confused about the relationship between human activity and divine activity. We, we think of it in terms of a 50-50 split. Half of the responsibility is ours and half of the responsibility is God's. And we try to state it uh, in various ways. Uh, pray and keep your powder dry. Uh, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition, that sort of thing, that suggests divided responsibility. The fact is that we can use the world. Any legitimate human means for getting the job done is proper for us as Christians, and we shouldn't discount uh, uh, human activity and human means. But Nehemiah wasn't really counting upon it. He was counting upon the activity of God. And, and the New Testament writers very often state this principle in a way that sounds paradoxical to us. It is a paradox, as a matter of fact. Paul says, I worked harder than any of you. Nevertheless, it was not I, but God who is at work in me, you see. And, and Paul can make statements about his, the energy that he put into a project, but, but it wasn't my energy, but the energy of God, you see. Uh, Calvin put it this way in, in his Institutes. We ought not to forget those most excellent benefits of the divine spirit which he distributes to whomever he wills for the common good of mankind. But if the Lord has willed that we be helped in physics, mathematics, and other like disciplines by the work and ministry of the ungodly, let us use this assistance, for if we neglect God's gift freely offered in these arts, we ought to suffer just punishment for our sloths. In other words, it's perfectly permissible to use human means to get any job done, human means uh, that are legitimate for us as Christians. But there is no power in human instrumentality. Human means are simply the instrument for the expression of God's power. Now, Paul or Nehemiah used these letters of safe conduct. They were helpful to him. He used these acquisition slips that permitted him to cut wood in the royal forest. And he permitted the king to send a royal escort because it was helpful to him. He didn't discount human activity. But ultimately, he was counting upon the providence and the power of God. You see? His reliance was upon the good hand of God. 
Now, uh, we're told that when Nehemiah and, uh, and his, and his uh, band of workers got uh, to Judah, they were immediately opposed. In verse 10, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, that's always the way it is, it seems to me. You, you set out on a, on a right course. You make up your mind that you're going to do something that God has called you to do. And immediately, you're opposed. Someone tries to sandbag the project. Uh, these are people that I call againers. Uh, you find them in your community. You find them in, in your schools. You find them in the church. Whatever it is you're for, they're again. And, uh, and they can be very, uh, very persuasive, and they can be very uh, uh, difficult opponents. Now, these people were. We know from literature outside the Scripture that this man, Tobiah, was actually, or Sanballat, rather, was actually the uh, governor of the province of Samaria. So he had, uh, he had a great deal of political power behind him. The other man, Tobiah, was the governor of Ammon, the province just to the east, across the Jordan. So these people were very powerful opponents. And they will show up time and again in the story to oppose Nehemiah and his people whenever they set out to do what's right. Which is a lesson for us that doing God's will doesn't always mean that everything will go well. I don't know if it's your experience, but it's mine. Every time I decide to make some major course change in my life, uh, I find that I'm opposed, uh, either opposed internally or, or externally. We can expect that sort of thing. This is the opposition that comes with a commitment to obedience. But uh, Nehemiah was undeterred, and he made his way back to Jerusalem. Verse 11, I went to Jerusalem. Uh, by the way, Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian who wrote about 100 A.D., uh, some 550 years after this event, says that uh, it took about five years for Nehemiah to gather the materials and make that long trek through the Fertile Crescent from Susa, which is in the southern part of Iran today, down into uh, Jerusalem. It was a long and arduous and difficult and dangerous trip. So the acquisition of materials and the journey there took about five years. Uh, Nehemiah says, I, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, uh, trying to counteract the effects, effects of uh, jet lag, I suppose, I set out during the night with a few men. Uh, literally, the men who were with me, which would probably mean the Persian officers and cavalry, that had accompanied him, not the Jewish workers, but the Persians who came with him. I, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Very important phrase. Nehemiah is not concerned about his own personal self-interest. He is concerned about Jerusalem. God had put a plan in his heart for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So he goes out under cover of darkness. He takes only one horse so that uh, there won't be a great uh, a deal of noise and confusion to alert others to what he's doing. And he makes a circuit of the walls. 
By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley, up the valley Kidron, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials, that is the Persian, the Persian officials, Tobiah and Sanballat, did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Now, Jerusalem uh, in the time of Nehemiah was very small, just a little bit, uh, it covered an area a little bit larger than 10 acres. And the area that Nehemiah surveyed on his, his night ride uh, was, a, was, was right down at the southern part of the city of David. The city of David is on a little mountain, a little peninsula. Uh, it's called Mount Zion. And uh, uh, apparently most of the damage was at that at that point in the, in the city, and he wanted to reconnoiter. He needed to see the condition of the wall. So he went out the valley gate. Now, if this auditorium were the city of David, the valley gate would be right where I'm standing, on the northwest side of the city. And uh, Nehemiah, on his horse, with a few men accompanied, made his way out, accompanying him, made his way out of the, of the gate, and he made his way south, and he came to the dung gate, which is just about where that door would be. Now, of course, we're... We're talking about a much smaller area, but this will give you some idea of the geography of, of, this, uh, of this part of the city. Well, he makes his way out around the Dung Gate over to the, the spring of uh, Siloam, which would be over where that gate is. And then finally he got to just about where, where George is sitting back there in the sound booth, and he couldn't go any further. Now, I mentioned the first uh, day that we, uh, last Sunday, when we looked at this passage, that the Babylonians had torn down the supporting terraces that held up the wall on the east side of the city. The, uh, the city of David on the east side uh, is, is enclosed by a, it's almost a cliff, almost a straight drop down the side of the mountain. And uh, David had built up terraces to support the wall. Well, the Babylonians tore out the supporting terraces and the wall slid down into the valley, creating this enormous spill that Nehemiah describes here. He couldn't get through in his horse, and so he had to go on foot. He went down into the Kidron Valley, made his way down to the, uh, the northeast corner of the city of David and could go no further. And so he turned his horse around and came back all the way to the valley gate. Now, the only point he wants to make in describing this, uh, this night ride, his circuit of the walls, is the extent of the devastation. It was total. Nehemiah had an almost impossible job to rebuild the walls. The walls were devastated. They were flat on the ground. And he had a group of dispirited people to motivate to rebuild the walls. So the question is, how could he get them going? How could he motivate them? To complete the work that God had, uh, complete the assignment that God had given to them. Well, uh, let's let's read, beginning in verse uh, 17. Then, after gathering the necessary facts, after making the circuit of the walls, after pondering 
the problem for a while. After giving himself to prayer, we've seen all of these attributes in Nehemiah's life. He was a very thorough man. He understood the problem. He thought it through. He was thoughtful and he was prayerful about it. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the Lord had said and what the king had said to me. There are two principles here that are so important for motivating others. The first thing Nehemiah does is to tell them of God's plan and inform them that his plan is good for them. And the second thing that he does is to remind them of God's power that makes it possible for them to implement God's plan. Those are the two great essentials for motivating others. Tell them what God envisions for them and show them how it can be done by God's power. Now, the thing to note here is that his concern, or God's concern, is for Jerusalem. And therefore, Nehemiah's concern is for Jerusalem. He is not primarily preoccupied with feathering his own nest. He doesn't talk to them about the need to build his governor's mansion. In fact, as a matter of fact, uh, we can infer that Nehemiah himself built the mansion because nothing is said in any of, anywhere in the book about his, his motivating others to build a house for himself. It wasn't his desire. His concern was for Jerusalem. And it wasn't merely for their protection. It was for their disgrace. Do you see that? It's because they were in shame. They had sinned and they had gone into exile and their city had been destroyed and the walls were broken down. They were embarrassed. They were disgraced because of their sin. Jeremiah wants them to be exalted. He wants them to see that God's desire for them is good. It's fundamentally good. Some years before, Jeremiah, in his book, had predicted that when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Now, you see, this has already been fulfilled. He had brought them back from Babylon, from Persia to Judea. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You see, his plan was good. It was good for them. And Nehemiah wanted them to know that. He wanted them to know that God had a plan for them. And it was a good one. And it was for their own uh, benefit. The second thing that Nehemiah does is to remind them of God's power. The, this, the same principle that motivated him was the principle that he used to motivate others. Uh, if you recall in, his, in, his, uh, in this earlier description uh, in, in verse 8, as he was gathering the materials, he said he was able to do so because the gracious hand of, of God was upon him. That's what kept him steady and sturdy and, and strong during these times when he had to face into the difficulties of gathering materials and bringing the people back into the, the workers back into the land. And now he says, that's what will motivate you. The gracious hand of my God is upon me and he's upon you. 
God is near. That, that figure of a hand upon him suggests proximity and fellowship. Uh, God is there, available, nearby, ready to be put to, put to use. His power, the power that, that, that flung the stars into space and maintains the order in the universe, is available to us. Isaiah 40 says that the stars are like sheep and God is like a shepherd. He calls them out one by one. He knows them all by name. Halley's Comet turns up on schedule because God sees to it that it, that it turns up when, it, when, it's, uh, when it's supposed to appear. He orders the universe. And Nehemiah says that power that keeps things in line in the universe is available to you. He's nearby. He's not distant. He's here. If someone has written, No distant Lord have I, loving afar to be made flesh for me, he cannot rest until he rests in me. I need not journey far this dearest friend to see. Companionship is always mine. He makes his home in me. Now that is tremendously motivating to realize that God has a good plan for us and he's available to us to implement that plan. Understanding that principle shows us how to motivate others. What we want to do is evoke in others a love for Christ and seeing his plan that it's good and seeing his power that it's available evokes in us a response of worship and love and devotion and adoration to Christ. We don't have to lash people. We don't have to drive them. We can simply remind them of who God is and what he has in store for us and what he is to us. And the result is that love is awakened in our hearts for him and we want to serve him. Now that's what Nehemiah is doing. He doesn't have to drive. He doesn't have to threaten. He doesn't have to induce guilt. He doesn't have to put people under a heavy burden of obligation. He simply reminds them of who God is and what he can do for them. Now, uh, having done that, you would think that things would fall into line. But uh, these, uh, these governors turn up again when Sanballat the Horonite Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. They couldn't do much else because of the official letters from the Persian court, but they could make fun of the Jews. This fellow Geshem is also known from literature outside the scripture. There's a beautiful little silver uh, cup that has his name and the name of his son inscribed on it that indicates that this man was the king of all Arabia. This was no small potato. He was a very powerful man. He had uh, brought together a coalition of Arabs that extended from the Arabian Gulf uh, all the way to Egypt. And uh, this was a very powerful confederation of Arab tribes. Geshem was the king of this region. So little Judah was surrounded. They didn't have an army. They were a protectorate of the, of the Persian uh, Empire. Uh, they couldn't defend themselves. They didn't have a wall around their city yet. And to the north, there were the Samaritans. Off to the east, the Ammonites. To the south, Geshem, the Arab. And to the west, the Mediterranean. They had no one to turn to except the Lord. And uh, yet, they reply, let's start building. Let's start building. So they began the good work. 
And uh, when they're opposed, Nehemiah said uh, to Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem in verse 20, the God of heaven will give us success. Now remember, success in all of Scripture is not success at doing our projects, but it's doing God's will. That's what God promises. He will give us success in terms of doing his plan, accomplishing his will, which, as Paul says, is good and acceptable and perfect. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Uh, Nehemiah faces the uh, governors of these other provinces. He himself is a governor now of the province of Judah. And he says, all right, you men, bug off. This is not your project. This is ours. Leave us alone. We're doing what God has called us uh, to do. And they set about the task. And we'll see next week how they went about accomplishing God's will. Now, here's the principle. We motivate others by telling them of God's plan, which is for them. A good plan. A plan that benefits them. That's for their sake. And then secondly, we remind them that there is power power available to accomplish that plan. And the result of that sort of encouragement is that a sense of awe and worship and love is evoked, which moves our wills to action. Now, that's what Nehemiah did, and that's what we need to do. Now, there are a lot of places where this principle can be applied. But it seems to me that the place where we most try to change one another and motivate one another is in the family, and particularly in our marital relationships. And this is where we need to think through the principle taught to us in this this chapter. Uh, All of us are inclined to want to change our mates, for better or for worse. We want to shape them up. We want to get them in line. We want to help them out. We want to motivate them on to better things. How do we go about doing that? Well, the first thing that we ought to do is to be sure that what we want for our mates is what God wants for them. Nehemiah's plan was not self-centered. His plan was to see God's will fulfilled on behalf of these people. And so the first thing is to decide what do we want to make out of our mate? Is it something we want? Or is it something that God wants? Now, uh, you men are always telling me that I'm much too hard on the men. I need to pick on the women. So this morning, I will start out with the women. What do you want to make out of your man? What kind of person do you want him to be? Well, there are some women who, quite frankly, are really trying to make the wrong thing out of their man. They want them to be successful so they can have the things that their success will buy. A bigger home, a better home, nicer furniture, better clothes for themselves, a better place in the community. And so they push and try to motivate their husbands to make a success of themselves so they can make more money. Frankly, that's what it boils down to. Now, nowhere in Scripture... Is success defined as making more money? Success has to do with character, godly character. God's will is that we be godly. 
So what women really ought to seek for their men is godly character. And the question they ought to ask themselves is, how can I encourage my husband to be more of a man in God and motivate him in that direction? Because that's what's good. That will be better for our family, and that will be better for him. Uh, Some women want to make their husbands better husbands. By that, they mean more attentive to them. A husband who's available at their beck and call to meet their emotional needs, to pander to their desires, to cater to them, their moods and their whims and whatnot. And they get very upset when their husbands are gone. If they go hunting or fishing or they have to go on a business trip, they get very angry. Now, some men are gone way too much, and I probably have to confess that I am. Nevertheless, sometimes that's not the problem. It's not a question of of a man being gone too much. It's a question of his being gone at all. And some women are very, very protective and very controlling of their husbands. They get very angry when their husbands are gone. If they want to take an afternoon off uh, to spend some time on themselves, to play golf or to uh, play handball or racquetball or whatever, it upsets them because they feel we want him here. Now, the question you need to ask yourself at a time like that is my, cons- is my concern for my husband? Am I looking out for his interests and what will make a more relaxed and uh, better man out of him? Or is it just my own selfishness? You see? Uh, I, have a, I had a very good friend who was one of the most godly men I have ever known. He was a man of the word. He was a man of tremendous courage, vital witness. And his wife was very unhappy with him almost all of the time because of some of his mannerisms. He happened to be a very rough, tough guy, and uh, he was loud. Whenever he talked, he talked uh, in a to- in a, at a volume that blew everyone's eardrums out, and he used terrible grammar. He just slaughtered the king's English, and his wife was always embarrassed. But see, the problem was she was embarrassed, and she was always on his case because he wasn't what she wanted him to be. Now, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to help a husband clean up his his grammar if it's going to affect him in his business or if it's just a matter of his wanting to change. But you see what I'm saying, women, wives? What does God want from that man? What are the things that really matter? Those are the things to concentrate on. You see? And the question you need to ask yourself is what's God's plan for him? And then tell him about the goodness of God's plan. Encourage him in terms of God's will. Now, uh, let me pick on uh, the men because I can't leave them uh, untouched. Men are just as bad, if not worse. Men want their wives to be very, very skinny. Why? Not because they'll feel better, but so the men will look better when they have their beauties on their arms. Don't you men realize that? You know, I am more and more convinced that the eating disorders among women in our age are caused by men. My wife commented the other day on the Spiegel catalog. I don't know if you got it or not, but the women in there look wasted. I mean, they really do. They all look anorectic and... And you see, that's what men want. They set that model. But my question is, do you want that for your wife's well-being or for your own? 
And what about the appearance of your house? A lot of men get very uptight because the house is not neat and tidy and everything is put away. And they expect their wives to slave away in order to keep the house clean. Well, houses ought to be clean. But let me ask you, men, why do you want your house clean? Is it for your wife's sake or for your own? See? Now, obviously, if you try to motivate someone selfishly, you're not going to get very far. No wonder your wife gets upset when you're on her case all the time about the house because she can see through you like a pane of glass. You're not concerned about her. You're upset about the house. So the first step is to be sure that we have godly goals for the person that we want to sit and we want to motivate. To be sure that the goal is God's goal, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And that goes for men and women. And then the second thing to do is to remind them of God's resources. And that is so important. Because most of us don't want to change. Because we're afraid that we can't change. We're all that way. I have all sorts of things in my life that I would like to see changed. And I have tried to change them. And I can't change them. But you see, understanding the grace of God and his resources enables us to face into, in, into any problem. And lay hold of those resources and begin to change. In studying through the book of Galatians with, with the men on Wednesday morning this past year, I was so, or this past uh, uh, quarter, I was so impressed by Paul's emphasis on the way we change. We do not change by self-will. We do not change by gritting our teeth and clenching our jaw and deciding to change. He said it is by faith through the Spirit that we wait for the hope for righteousness. It says we lay hold of God and pray and ask Him to change us that we begin to change. So we need to tell the person Encourage the person, teach the person that we're trying to motivate to change about God's good plan for his or her life. And then we need to encourage them to lay hold of everything that God is and begin to count on him to change. And the result is that, is that a love for God is evoked in their hearts and they want to change. That's how you change people. You don't lash them. You don't drive them. You don't lever them. You don't pressure them. You just teach them and encourage them in those truths. I, so many of my colleagues in ministry are so frustrated. They're like Bruce Springsteen, you know, got a boulder on my shoulder and I'm feeling older, he says. And I know just how they, how they feel. You know, if I had to make people change, I'd get out of the ministry. What a frustrating deal. But I don't have to make people change. I don't have to drive people. I don't have to put them under a debt of obligation or guilt. That's not what God wants me to do. It's not what he wants you to do. He just wants us to tell people how good God is and how good his plan is and how available he is to us. And then people begin to change. You see them change little by little. They go from one degree of likeness to Christ to the next. Let's, let's pray. And let's take a moment to search our own hearts and ask God to deliver us from false expectations and plans for one another, for our children, for our parents, for our husbands and wives, 
and ask him to deliver us from our self-centeredness and our tendency to to want people to change so life will be easier and better for us. And ask him to change our orientation so that we begin to think in terms of what's what what your will is what what your will is for uh, for the person that they're they're concerned about. Lord, we thank you for this very helpful and and practical teaching in this book. Lord, how it how it delivers us from false expectations and from false methods of motivating others and delivers us from the the frenzy and frustration of trying to get other people to to do what's right but doing it in in in, in absolutely the wrong way so that the results are counterproductive and hurtful. Lord, we thank you for telling us the truth. Now help us to believe it and help us to apply this truth to others, uh, to ourselves, and then in our dealings with others. Thank you, Lord, for your graciousness to us. We know that in the past, You've motivated us through your love and your tenderness. And that's the way we want to motivate others. Thank you for this understanding. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.